Paceline is a production of the Cycling Independent with the support of listeners like you and the master bike builders at Seven Cycles. We are community supported, community focused, and dedicated to the whole of cycling. At the Cycling Independent, if you ride bikes, you're one of us. From the Cycling Independent, this is The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. I'm Patrick Brady, and with me is my co-host, John Emlin, Robot Lewis. Each week, we take a look at how cycling fits in our lives. Um, sounds like you've had a little bit more on your plate of late. I have a lot on my plate. Um, I have an aging mother who requires... Uh, now requires grocery shopping and... Um, chauffeuring and all manner of input um but also the made bike show is coming up in just a few weeks mm-hmm. and i have a client or two with an interest or two in in that uh so i have been writing some press releases and promo copy and uh all manner of stuff it's all hands to the tiller you know yeah the the bike biz we we do things last minute that's how we do them <laughs> um will you and i will we get to see each other there uh i imagine we will i will be there thursday and friday mm-hmm Mm-hmm. Of the oh, what is it? It's a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I yeah. I have to come back Sunday so I can take my son to college. Oh, yeah! Wow, yeah. Um, wow, yeah. That's so, a thing. <laughs> so we will stand in one another's majestic presence presences. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I imagine we'll hug. Maybe we'll high five. I don't know. I vote for all of the above. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to post this when we do our post, but I saw the most hilarious photo of a sign someone had put up at the beginning of a mountain bike trail, uh, basically telling people, you know, just check your Strava-ness, you know, at the gate. Uh, Right. And I was like, you know... Someone should be pumping those out like pennies. Uh, and so, you know, I'm, I'm going to do my, my part to put uh, a shoulder to this particular wheel and, and post it with our show notes. Uh, it was, it was genius and, uh, needs, it needs to be a thing. Uh, yeah, I was talking with a friend of mine who is a bike fitter in Asia. I was talking with him this morning and he was lamenting the type anus of yeah that came out wrong the type a attitude yeah maybe it didn't um yeah you know uh there's a time and a place for strava and there are people for, uh, who find it very motivating and uh i mean i don't want to get too deep in it because i'm pretty data averse um, right. so I represent the other side. I'll say everyone's welcome, you know, do your thing. Um, but his, his particular lamentation was that everyone seemed to be so concerned with every detail of their bike riding, except the fun and bike riding part. <laughs> and and he's a fitter, you know, he's in the millimeters, he's in the angles and details. So he, he, he lives in that world, but he's like, God, I just, I wish people would stop, um, trying to choke this thing to death all the time mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. just ride their bikes. Um, so I, I, again, I'm not trying to yuck people's yums, but I, I think as a general rule and as a, as an admonition to myself as well, chill out. <laughs> right I, I i love the fast on the downhill you know i i'm a i'm a big fan have been a big fan for a long long time 
Um, but there are some places where that is more conducive and some places where it is less conducive. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not trying to tell people to stop enjoying things that they enjoy. And if those are the things that turn them on and they're a different personality type than me, there's no, there's no problem. There's Mm -hmm. no problem. Mm -hmm. Um, but just as I think I try not to get my foibles all over everyone else, maybe we should all just consider asking, is this what everyone is into? And you know, am I, am I overflowing my boundaries anyway? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> anyway <laughs> moving right along yeah before uh any of these eggshells that i'm walking on crack um <laughs> maybe i'll dive in oh why not why not so so today i want to talk about innovation and uptake mm. in other words the the things the bike biz serves up each season as the quote-unquote next thing And of that stuff, what we actually adopt and use. Mm -hmm. So this could be anything from gearing going from 11 speed to 12 speed or 13 speed to Canyon's uh, KISS system, basically Mm -hmm. a steering stabilizer for mountain bikes to internal routing uh, of various completeness. Mm -hmm. It's a real hodgepodge of features. And obviously some of it has value while other things are, I'd say, marginal at best. (laughs) Yeah. So so how do we process these things in real time and figure out what's going to stick and what's going to fade away, uh, likely to reappear down the road in some other possibly better form? Mm-hmm. Um, because we're going to do oval chain rings again. You just know we are. <laughs> it. <laughs> truth. <laughs> truth. So it's tempting to think the bicycle, as it has currently evolved, has reached some point of diminishing returns. Mm-hmm. From a gearing and braking point of view, what more can be done? From an aerodynamic perspective, what more is there to gain? Really, how much better can bikes get? Mm-hmm. Having said that, and despite whatever cynicism we, I, might have, we've seen some very real improvements over the last decade. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, disc brakes are uh, undeniably better, although they are heavier. Um, uh, electronic shifting, uh, is better most of the time. Those are two obvious examples, but also tubeless tires. Certainly some of the geometric shifts in mountain biking count as leaps forward. Oh yeah. But the thing is the industry needs something to lead each season with. Mm -hmm. If only to signify what's new and current. Mm -hmm. And you can be mad about that, but it makes sense. Like we might uh, sort of poop on this whole shiny new thing paradigm, but it but it works for one. And sometimes that shiny new thing is also a big, important deal. And we have to recognize that even the company often doesn't know whether what they've done has that big picture value or not Mm -hmm. uh, until it's in the market. Yep. Right. Like they are excited about it. Um, for various reasons, some of them may be that they live inside a very small bubble, <laughs> uh, but they, we all live in, in, in some context. Uh, so they don't know until it's in the market, whether it's really a game changer or not. So at this moment, a lot of companies are rushing toward full internal routing options for cockpits, frames, and forks. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Envy has a system in place. Now FSA has one. There are just a few compatible forks. So this is, we're kind of on the leading edge of this technology's development. And here I want to pause and recognize that everything I'm about to say runs against my (laughs) (laughs) self-interest. I work with a few players in this space, folks who are betting on its success. So... Uh I'm going to express some cynicism that runs counter to some of the projects that I'm asked for my input on. Mm-hmm. So I just I just want to own that. Sometimes sometimes I'm talking about things here from which I stand to gain and from which I agree and I, with. I hope that I mostly own those. Uh, but so my position on this is a little bit um, ambivalent at best. I'm yeah. not convinced. I'm not convinced and Mm -hmm. I'm not convinced because while a certain section of the bike watching public seems to appreciate the clean aesthetic of a bike with no visible brake lines or shift wires, the uptake on this is pretty slow. 
Uh, and that may have to do with the cost because it's only on, you know, the the most expensive of the bikes in our market right mm-hmm. now. <laughs> but it may also have to do with a perception that the aesthetic upgrade, if you will, isn't really a game changer. Um, so I'm beginning to think internal routing is a high end bike signifier. Like if you see it, you think, well, that's a that's a high end bike and it's a new bike and that's that will have value to the companies that are working on it. But it might not be a feature bikes will adopt longer term. Mm-hmm. And it's important to note I'm often wrong about these things, <laughs> probably more than half the time, if I'm honest. I just have the feeling that the cost and complexity of what is essentially an aesthetic upgrade won't push it over the top into regular use. Mm-hmm. So this is not me impugning its looks or telling people they shouldn't want it. Uh, I just have the feeling it has less merit than its proponents want it to have. Equally, I think we've all gone a bit cross-eyed with more gears, right? Like, I don't think when 14 speed comes out, people are going to be like, oh, finally, the 14th, <laughs> the 14th cog. Um, we are definitely reaching a point of diminishing returns there where to increase the number of cogs will demand electronic shifting because it's the only way you're going to be able to make the derailleur movement precise enough that you're not constantly thinking, Oh my God, I need to trim. Uh, I need to trim the derailleur so that the chain isn't rubbing. Uh, you know, the chain's going to get ever narrower. Uh, smaller chains aren't as strong as bigger chains that that introduces a, a whole new problem. So, you know, yeah, uh, m- more cogs, um, it's going to get harder and harder to do that. That it's more cogs is like less weight. It's going to get harder and harder to do it. And you're going to introduce a whole new set of problems that haven't been issues to the same degree that they could potentially become, uh, making us making a 600 gram carbon fiber road frame, uh, is it's really really hard to do they've pretty much you know squeezed all the epoxy out um there aren't many places left to lose that weight without compromising frame integrity and and it has to be said even if you say that 600 uh that that sort of bleeding edge carbon fiber frame is is the peak it it also has durability compromises built into it Mm -hmm. yeah yeah yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, less material is less durable. Uh, That's it, yeah. All our all our current science says that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think I think the gains on the gearing side. I think where we'll eventually end up with this is automatic transmissions that you can, you know, tune if you, you know to whether you're a gear masher or a spinner, mm-hmm. but that ultimately someone is going to take shifting out of your hands. Uh, because they think, yeah, just pedal the bike, uh, and let us worry about the gearing, whether people will be into that or not. I don't know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but I, I could see that coming down the the pike. Uh, Obviously there are already some iterations of this technology in the market, but they tend to be on the commuter bike side. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, to your point regarding uh, going full internal routing. I remember the first big step in that direction that I encountered. This has now been like 10 years ago when specialized moved from the tarmac SL three to the tarmac SL four, the SL three had all the cables routed on the outside. Uh, there were cable stops so that you had bare cable running along uh, bare brake cable running along the top tube. Um, again, cable stops on the down tube. So you had bare cable running for a stretch of, uh, the down tube for both derailers. And when they came out with the SL4, they had this complex system of, uh, uh, brass fittings that the ferrules fit into and everything ran through the frame, uh, not to the degree that it does now, but 
cables would leave the levers. Uh, they would enter either the top tube or the down tube, and they would you would uh, you would change stations in a manner of speaking at the down tube. There was a slot. I mean, at the bottom bracket, there was a slot there where you had to feed everything through and get it re-aimed for its next stop. Uh, I pointed out in my review that that was going to increase the cost of maintaining that bike rather significantly. I could replace a cable on the SL3 in minutes. Uh, I couldn't replace a cable on the SL4 inside of an hour. Mm. Uh, And so my only opposition on this um, is from the standpoint of what people are going to pay to maintain their bikes. Um, Those hourly charges. I mean, lots and lots of bike shops at this point now charge by the hour, Um, at least for the bigger jobs. And what you will spend to get that bike maintained uh, is going to go up rather radically. It, it already is going up because shops have to pay mechanics real money in order to keep them. It's very hard to keep a good mechanic. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, a lot of suppliers have pulled m- margin making items out of shops and and are selling them direct. Yep. So shops are are less um able to depend on that incremental revenue from selling a pair of gloves or some water bottles or some this. It's not that they don't have those things, they just don't sell them in nearly the volume they did a decade ago. Mm-hmm. And so shops are having to lean more and more on their service departments to stay afloat. Um, So you have rising labor costs and a greater need to earn real money from service. And yeah, the rates are going to go up. And I suspect you're right. I I think I think as far as shifting is concerned, this will all be wireless uh, at some point in Mm -hmm. the not very distant future. Braking is probably the bigger deal. Um, you know, I do some work uh, as people, some people might know with Chris King and they have a headset that will allow you to pass with the NV in route system or the FSA system to pass the brake lines through the frame, through the headset. I just don't know if those are that those are good ideas. Um, and you know, the, 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 certainly the mechanics to do it. And I mean the people, the mechanics, I mean the mechanical parts of the bike that do it are more complicated and more expensive. And so it's just a matter for me of like, what is the real value of this? If it's making maintenance more difficult, um, it's making bike building more difficult, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. I have assembled um, a factor bike that had all internal routing. It used their combination bar stem combo to do that. And that was the first bike of that sort that I did. And it was a nightmare. Um, And then when I got to uh, the Allied Echo, uh, I found myself missing the factor because it was even harder. Uh, The the rear brake hose, you know, went into the bar, wound around into the stem, the the bar and stem were two different units. So you didn't have as much room to work with there. Um, then from the stem, uh, it passed into the fork back out of the fork and then into the frame, getting that hose through the fork and into the frame, getting that hose through the fork, not very hard, getting that hose into and out of the fork and into the frame while the fork is in the frame. (laughs) Did you ever build chips in a bottle when you were a kid? No, I had a kit that was meant to, to do that. It never got finished. I was a kid who never ever didn't finish my models. I didn't finish the ship in a bottle. Uh, it went in the trash at some point, which was entirely unlike me. But, you know, and there are times when I go to breakaway bikes, the bike shop that's just right by me, 100 yards away, and I'll go in there with a question and talk to those guys. And, you know, it's evident from working on this stuff all day, every day that they can do these operations 
considerably more quickly than I can. And as I practice it, you know, I get better at it. But if it comes time to put a different group on that allied echo, um, I'm going to have to allocate a weekend to that. I don't really want to give up a weekend to that. Right. There's a cost benefit ratio at work here. Like if, if this process was making you faster or the bike respond better, you'd invest the time in learning how to do it. I think my issue here is that this is essentially an aesthetic exercise. I'm going to go full devil's advocate here and say, you know, to be utterly fair as someone who has actually spent time in wind tunnels, uh, mostly watching, but also personally, it does clean up a bike. It will make a bike quicker. We are talking single digits in Watts, but I can't say it's not nothing. When people are buying chain lubes to reduce drag by uh, two grams, if you're if you're buying that chain lube, then you're going to want um, a bike with no visible hoses or cables or anything like that. Yeah. Ninety nine percent of riders don't care. Doesn't matter. Yep. Absolutely Great. true. Yeah. All right. I think I think the real gains that are to be made on the value side of the ledgers uh, are going to come from things like Shimano's 105 Di2 group that came out this last year. Yeah. So this is yeah. taking a technology that the the quote unquote high end of the market has said yes, yes, this is good, and making it a price pricing it in a middle market uh, package that lets more people into the game. I think that's ultimately those are the gains that I'm really interested in. Um. I'm actually surprised more people didn't talk about that group uh, over this last year. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, all the group sets today are amazing. And what you can get two and three and even four tiers from the top is so much better than the very best stuff from a decade ago. So, oh, my gosh, yes. You yes. just don't have to spend a ton of money to get really dazzlingly performative performance i don't even know what uh words i'm using anymore but you to get really good stuff Mm -hmm. and that to me is is much more exciting than another cog or um you know hidden hidden brake lines i I would much rather have the person who comes to me and say oh i want to buy a new bike i haven't ridden in a bunch of time to be able to point them at an electronic shifting bike would be that's exciting yeah yeah an electronic shifting bike that works well you know it doesn't weigh six thousand pounds it gives them a great experience that's the thing it gives them a great experience and they're not going to bring it back to me four months after they bought it and say it's not shifting right (laughs) that's that has tremendous value for me also that you know it's worth it's worth praising Shimano. Yes, our sponsor. Um, but, you know, I don't I don't I've never pulled a punch with Shimano. And and here's here's a punch that I don't have to pull anymore. Never did for that matter. It, so it used to be that Durace was what everybody wanted because it worked the best. Right. Uh, if you wanted uh, the most powerful brakes And the most flawless shifting, you bought Dura-Ace because that's what you got. And there were specific, I'll say flaws, built into the lower groups. So back in the age of 8-speed, Dura-Ace's spacing in the back was narrower than Altegra and 105 so that it would shift more quickly. You couldn't interchange those parts either. So if you were going to go for a long tour, um, you couldn't go put the heavier, more durable Altegra cassette on your bike, you had to use the Dura-Ace one. Well, as you worked your way down and you got from 105 to Tiagra, those brakes were questionable on a good day. They were terribly flexible. Their stopping power was not good at all. And I always objected to that. I only ever reviewed a few bikes with Tiagra because I just flat out didn't like riding the stuff. Mm-hmm. and I would point out that, you know, this is not going to give somebody the same sort of riding experience as going up at least to 105. 
And then SRAM came along with Rival, which was their third group down. And Rival essentially worked, you know, mostly as well uh, as Force or Red. It was just heavier. The brakes weren't worse. You were going to stop in the same distance with Rival brakes as you would Red brakes. Um, and that was something that philosophically I really loved. There's been an evolution at Shimano now, and to justify buying Dura-Ace, you, you've got you've to be coming up with some sort of back handspring sort of reasoning. Altagra and 105 are so good at this point, it's a matter of, well, what is it you're looking for? What is it you don't feel you're getting from this other stuff? Right. It used to be easy to say, well, Tegra doesn't give you this, and it doesn't give you this, and it doesn't give you this. Now, the only thing it doesn't give you uh, is that lesser relationship to gravity. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah, and I think this is exciting. I think... I think I, I'm fortunate to get to ride a bunch of high-end bikes uh, because of what I do, and I don't feel jaded about it. You know, like you get on one of these bikes and you're like, "Wow, this is this is really good." And a lot of that experience is about ease of use, um, and a lot of that comes from the group sets, and they are just so much better than they were even a decade ago that mm -hmm. uh, I think it's got to bring people into cycling more because I think I'm sure a lot of people get a new bike or got a new bike, a mechanical shifting bike years ago, and they would say, well, well I finally figured out how to shift it uh, because there are a few <laughs> paradigms at play. Uh, but then the gear started slipping and I could never keep it tuned and et cetera, et cetera. And so... Mm -hmm. This is real game-changing stuff, but you know, it's at hard the to end tell. of the day, if the bike disappears beneath you, then it did its job. That's yeah. that's the thing. You want to stop thinking about the bike and focus on the ride, and that's a compelling reason for these upgrades. Yeah. Anytime you can make the bike disappear, mission accomplished. That's right. That's yeah. right. Cool. Alrighty, let's take a break. We're probably going to come back, aren't we? We will, whether okay. they like it or not. Okay. This month, we're sponsored by our good friends at Seven Cycles, who've been in the vanguard of American custom frame building for more than a quarter century. When you work with Seven on a bike, you get real input into the design. They offer more tube set options than any other builder. They offer more ways to customize your bike. The process is deep, but it's also fun, and the result is a bike you'll love riding for a lifetime. We've secured a few places in their busy build queue for Paceline listeners, which means you can get a fully custom dream bike from Seven in just three weeks from submitting your measurements. This is the fastest route to the very best bike you're ever going to own. Also, just for us, they're doing what they call the Centennial Build. That means that your designer, bike builder, welder, and finisher will have more than 100 years combined bike building experience. That's a lot. To find out more, just head to 7cycles.com forward slash TCI. Do you love high quality bike lights and bike pumps and tire inflators and baskets and bags and cargo racks and fenders and various other essentials any normal person needs to get through life by bike? Of course you do. Probably preaching to the choir here, you're likely up to speed on Portland Design Works. This podcast is actually sponsored by them, makers of high-quality fenders, cages, lights, and all the other stuff I just mentioned, plus some. Use code REVOLTING15 for 15% off your first PDW order. My two favorite items that they make are the Cargo Web, which keeps all my stuff intact, safe and sound in my basket, and the 3 Rencho, which is an offset 15mm coated wrench with a tire lever on the end. The attentive among us might remember the infamous Dan Cheever eating peanut butter with his in an old video spot they did several years ago. Portland Design Works, they're the best. Remember, use code REVOLTING15 for 15% off your first PDW order. I'm not the boss of you, you are, but you know what's right. Portland Design Works. Beautiful, simple gear for everyday cycling. 
Okay, we're back with The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. What have you got for us this week? So when I was in Memphis recently, I was out for a ride with some friends. And when we stopped for coffee, the subject of bikepacking came up. And moments Hmm. after we started discussing places we'd like to go uh, bikepacking, one of them kind of stopped. He held up his hands. He's like, you know, hang on a second. And he asked me, what's the difference between bike touring and bikepacking? The first thing I said is that part of the difference is simple terminology. Bikepacking sounds hip. It sounds cool. <laughs> Bike touring conjures images of helmets larger than construction hard hats and orange flags atop fiberglass poles waving in the wind. You know, it's it's just not the same thing. <laughs> uh, but of course, in reality, it's not so simple as that. Um, yep. The big difference, you know, and there really is a, a, there's a true difference here. The big difference is where the load is carried. With bike touring, the idea is to get as much of the load down low as possible. Panniers do a remarkable job of lowering a bike's center of gravity. Um, and low rider racks on the fork get that get that load centered right around the axle and it's remarkable i can remember when there were other racks where you you held uh you mounted the panniers up higher and uh the difference between those two mount points is remarkable Mm. um i also remember times when i was doing a, a tour in the rockies years ago i'd be doing better than 40 miles per hour on my touring bike i had four panniers on it uh, handlebar bag, 10 on the back, and I'd be coming down some pass in the Rockies and I could sit up, I could drink my bottle, I could use both hands to peel a banana or tear open a granola bar uh, and, you know, have a nice meal without being hunched over. Um, mm. It was, you know, those were times that just felt like, wow, bike, bike touring is really, this is, this is good stuff. I love right. this. Uh, life is good. Of course, having ba- having bags wider than your shoulders uh, isn't a problem because you're riding on the road. Sure. With bikepacking, the idea is to get the load as narrow as possible because bikepacking is generally considered a mountain bike activity and often the riding takes in single track. Uh, having a pair of panniers that spread 18 or 20 inches across can be a problem on a narrow trail. And let's just be honest that dragging cloth panniers through poison oak should be a non-starter, even to those who aren't allergic. Mm. Uh, The one place where the load can afford to be spread wide is at the handlebar. And the thinking there is that if you can get the bar through, anything attached to the bar will also get through. Uh, I've been in some circumstances narrow enough that I'm not entirely sure that's true, but whatever. Okay. that's just a one-off. Um, so that's why we see frame bags that fill the entire front triangle uh, or saddle bags the size of a fire hydrant. Um, the load is narrow if high. The two approaches result in different effects on handling, though. Bike packing setups result in a higher center of gravity, making the bike more reactive in some ways, but less so in other ways. Lots of weight up high means the bike leans in uh, more quickly um, and you got to do more to stop that quick lean. Um, Yep. But lots of weight on the handlebar slows steering. Um, There's a whole school of thought in the the great, uh, um, the the Randonnet crowd who love to have great big handlebar bags. They go for low trail bikes, what would otherwise be super quick handling bikes, but because they've got all this weight on there, the bike handles a little more normally. Um, it's an interesting, it's, it's an interesting philosophy. It works. Not quite my scene. Right. Um, so, uh, with bike touring, someone using four panniers can dance a jig on the bike and the bike will keep moving straight. Um, The good news is that with the weight down low, the bike is still pretty maneuverable when it needs to be, um, so long as the maneuvering can lean into leaning. (laughs) See what I did there? I did. Yeah. Uh, 
And that brings me to what I think is the interesting crossover point between bike touring and bike packing. By the way, I can't explain why bike touring is two words and bike packing is one word. Because um, the Germans didn't invent it. Yeah, no, it's a thing that I come up against uh, sometimes in my copywriting. And but it, it's like there's so much stuff in the bike industry that um, that autocorrect just never contemplated. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Tube set, you know, any like is down tube one word? I mean, I think so, but no. Uh Yeah. Yeah. I'm tired of that red squiggle, so I've I've made some changes on how I write. Yeah, same. <laughs> um so more and more people seem to be striking out on fire roads and logging roads. Uh it, you know, any sort of back road type unpaved sort of thing. You know, as opposed to either paved roads or single track. Um, in this setting, I think bike packing setups aren't really the way to go, though. Uh, first, if you're using panniers, you can simply carry more and they are easier to load. Uh, if you add a handlebar bag, that can be devoted to food, easy phone access, spare batteries, and other essentials. Uh, I would say carrying a camera, but who does that anymore? Right. Uh, maybe my pal John at the Radivist. Um, but with bike packing, you know, your tent is getting strapped to your handlebar. Yep. That's, that is the place for it. The only place, um, having ridden both ways, I'll say that if I were to do a bike packing trip that involved single track, no question, I'd use my bike packing bags. No question. Uh, however, were I doing a traditional tour, it would be panniers all the way. I wouldn't even think about pulling out those other bags. Um, and if I were doing a bike packing trip with no single track panniers, uh, if I wanted to keep my load light, I'd simply run the front two panniers and handlebar bag. Um, but if I needed to carry all the things like tent and sleeping bag and some cotton, so I didn't look like a freak walking into a restaurant in the middle of nowhere, I'd load all four panniers. Um, my comments here should be viewed in the light of, I don't do any of this stuff. Uh, let me not... stop and ask you one question though. Sure. Given that one of my, uh, quirks in life is that I sometimes overthink things. Did I just overthink this one? No, 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 no. I think there was some good guidance there about how to manage different types of trips. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I hadn't thought of the difference between touring and bikepacking being where the load is, and that's an interesting way to think about it. To me, and I'm this is wrong uh, <laughs> on some level. To me, please when proceed. When you're touring, you're staying at an inn or a hotel, or you know you've got some accommodation. Whereas bikepacking is, you know, you bust out the the tent and sleep outside. That that may well be wrong. I, that feels like a more natural way. As a graduate to, student, largely subsisting on ramen and tuna, yeah, uh, you, you're relative to that point in my life. You are wrong. Um, yes, at this station in life, oh yeah, I you know unless <laughs> there are no beds nearby, I want a bed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I would almost say that um, some of the bike touring of yesteryear was bike packing uh and <laughs> very possibly some of the bike packing of this year is touring but uh that's only if you use my criteria instead of yours and either way i don't really participate in either one so my opinions are worth what they're normally worth <laughs> <laughs> one thing i want to add that i find uh, both remarkable and encouraging is the way striking out on your bike and knowing the sun is going to set with you possibly still in your chamois or maybe having changed out of it. But, you know, you're striking out on your on your bike and you're going to be in some place different at the end of the day. You're not doing a, a, some loop of a group ride, uh, or, or something else like that, which so dominated cycling, at least on the roadside mm -hmm. for, you know, 20 ish years. Um, I, I never 
ever thought that bike touring was ever going to become a thing again. Um, and I, I was vaguely misty eyed over that. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I'm being glib about like, I don't do either one of those things, but, um, there is a multi-day trip across Wales on mountain bikes, the trans across the, what's called the trans Cambrian way, which is very, very high on my list of things to get to soon. I'm not going to say bucket list. I'm just going to say stuff. I really want like, Mm -hmm. I'm going to get to that in the next year or two. So that's, that is one. And the other is that when my wife and I look at our, our empty nested future, um, some touring probably, uh, with hotels involved is, is one of the things that we would probably do at least once a year. Mm -hmm. Um, and what country that is or how we do it, I don't, I don't even mind. Um, I just think it's a different, an interesting way to go. So I'm not, I'm not anti doing those activities. Just my current lifestyle doesn't, uh, lend itself to that. Right, 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 right. Um, but if you get an adventure cycling journal as I did or have, or do, maybe I still do, um, <laughs> you know, it's loaded with great trips. Um, yeah. So even my wife, who doesn't really live all the way in sight on planet cycling, looks through it and thinks, I would do some of this. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jennifer and I have been discussing something to do this fall. And uh, I, I you, you know, she's the one who I met her when she was riding down the West Coast. She was mm-hmm. riding down the Pacific Coast Highway. Uh doing a trip that, you know, hopefully she will repeat at some point with me in tow. Mm. Um, but we've been talking about doing some sort of tour this fall and I, I, it's possible that my imagination has run away from the both of us. Um, I'm, I'm looking at areas of Washington that I don't know. And she does. And I'm thinking like, Oh, I bet we could ride that logging road from there to there. (laughs) Yeah, you're you're already a page three story in USA Today. <laughs> <laughs> I got back in touch with the guys at number 22 who made my travel gravel bike and asked what, what would be involved in getting a fork with like all the brazons for low riders and et cetera. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, they haven't quite yet come up with an answer, but uh, they seem to be interested in generating the answer. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you'll keep us posted on that. Probably so. It, I, I think it'll, yeah, it'll make for an interesting thing to investigate further. Alrighty, let's move on to Paceline Picks. All right. Um, so today I actually want to revisit some past picks with longer term thoughts on how good they are over time. Um, mm. I'm not ever going to talk about a product here that I don't like, uh, but sometimes new insights emerge so I wanted to kind of true some things up. Mm-hmm. First up, there's the Fox Speedframe Pro helmet. Um, I do love this helmet in almost every regard with special mention for the buckle. It has a magnetic closure that makes it mm. so easy to attach mm-hmm. because I'm I'm the guy that uh, rides off without having buckled the buckle. Really? I am. I'm okay. often in the midst of things and my helmet jostles and I think, oh yeah, it's because I didn't, <laughs> I didn't strap in. So, you know, the, the magnetic buckle just goes together really quick. Uh, it is solid at that point. And then, uh, undoing it is just a slide, a little sliding mm-hmm. motion that you can do with one hand. You don't think a buckle is important, but it really is. Uh, the Speedframe pro is also really comfortable, The one con I mentioned months back and that persists is that the way the padding is mounted, it channels sweat right down my nose. (laughs) So I'm riding and then I have this flow coming off of my nose, which which happens with any helmet, but not like this. This is this is like uh, one of the what's that egregious. It's egregious. It's like one of the waterfalls uh, along the. columbia river gorge in in oregon it just is like wow that's a lot of water coming from on high um there are solutions for this problem uh uh dr ray who is a listener of ours has uh, long advocated the the gutter 
um, sweat channeling device. Mm -hmm. But really, Fox needs to look at it. You know, if you're sweaty like me, be warned. It's a great helmet. It is a great helmet uh, with this one little thing. Mm -hmm. Next, um, I recently mentioned that I'm wearing liners. I'm, I'm, I wear bibs much less than I used to uh, mm -hmm. because of heat, etc. And so I've been collecting liner shorts and trying uh, different ones. The Gore Fern Flow, yes, Fern Flow, they're called, liner shorts are even better than I first thought. Um, they were... <laughs> Okay. They were comfortable right out of the package. Uh, they fit well. I liked them because really, once you have a liner on, you don't want to think about it, right? That's the idea. Yeah. Uh, set it and forget it. As they've worn in a little, they've actually gotten softer and more comfortable, and they are absolutely the first ones I grab if they're not in the laundry. Uh -huh. So, tremendous value there. Finally, uh, I'm going to bring up the Kuat Sherpa 2 rack again. Mm -hmm. I think I picked it a year or maybe 18 months ago. Maybe two years. I don't I don't know when it, it was a long time ago. I love this rack. It's so easy to use. And my friends who have other racks uh, that I ride with, you know, mm -hmm. we sort of switch off who's going to drive. And, and there, there's an array of racks represented. And I yep. think I am the winner. I think... Pretty clearly, they see how it works. They see how low profile it is when it's closed, when it yeah. you know doesn't have bikes on it. And they, they're like, this is what they wish they had. Um, I couldn't be happier with that rack. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, because we do the podcast weekly and because I'm a little persnickety about how much product I allow into my life, I've really been wanting to revisit things that have proven themselves or revealed some little problems like that Fox helmet. Mm -hmm. I'm going to try to do this periodically, not just be pushing, you know, oh, try this, try that, try the other thing, but to mm -hmm. kind of revisit and say that thing I recommended before I have discovered that it chafes or, you know, whatever the whatever right. the issue is. Right, right, um, right. But especially the stuff that's even better than I thought it was. Yeah, yeah, I yep. think it's it. Those are the things that I want to bring back. So that's that's me for the week. Cool. Alrighty. My pick this week goes to my poll and it's not a single product. It's a company. Uh, I'm going with the German maker of panniers, bags, backpacks, and more Ortlieb. Mm. I would say Blackburn, but they're owned by private equity and some bean bean counter gutted their line of panniers and other bags. Uh, the, their bike packing bags, they still have, I think almost all of them, but they had some, they had an amazing line of panniers and a rack trunk and handlebar bag. <clears throat> they were uh, top notch. I would put them up against anything, but they discontinued them. Mm. Uh, yeah. The, the, uh, the brand manager, Robin left a few years ago and in his absence, <sighs> yeah. Anyway, moving right along. Uh, a few years back, I reviewed Ortlieb's front roller plus and back roller plus panniers, as well as their ultimate six plus handlebar bag. The plus line of products is lighter weight than their free or classic lines of products, which are what most people are probably familiar with. Um, you know, if they've seen Ortlieb stuff, those are the shiny things that look like they are ready for river rafting. Right. Um, you know, you, you could keep your child in there and they'd stay dry. Yes. Um, the plus line is waterproof Cordura and it shaves about four ounces per bag off of the other lines. Um, their mounting system is terrifically simple and bags pop off the rack with just a light pull on their quick lock strap. Mm. Uh, it works super well. I've never had another pannier that was as easy to get on or off. Um, Ortlieb also makes some very uh, interesting slash curious uh, and may, maybe a little OCD uh, organizers to keep your stuff straight. Um, I like them, you know, I, I look at them and they're neat, but you know, quite honestly, uh, Ziploc freezer bags are a lot less expensive. I was going to say, is this a cry for help? But go on. <laughs> so, <laughs> Ziploc freezer bags. Got it. Yep. Check. Yep. 
Yeah. Um, I've been a fan of those for a long time. Yeah. Uh, Ortley may have been a late entry into the world of bike packing bags, but given their overall expertise in making stuff for hanging things off bikes, uh, their stuff is terrific. Uh, I can't compare it directly uh, to the Blackburn stuff because I haven't ridden their bike packing bags, but their attention to detail and quality is what happens when you let Germans loose on a problem. <laughs> uh, you know, and somehow all their product names aren't like 14 syllables. Uh, so yeah. there is someone sensible there. Um, but yeah, the, the, the stuff is just amazing. I've got my eye, as I mentioned, on a ride I'd like to do this fall that splits that divide between bike touring and bike packing. And my goal is to use uh, those Ortlieb front rollers um, and the handlebar bag. That should be enough to kind of, you know, allow me from end to end. If if we start, if we decide to go like full tent and whatnot, yeah, that'll be... Um, that'll require a little more work on my part. Um, sure. Yeah. But I've, uh, I'm a big fan of what Ortlieb does. It's mm -hmm. always super well thought out and very, very durable. Uh, so you can learn more at Ortlieb.com. That's O R T L I E B. There will of course be a link in our show notes. Alrighty, John, I think that's a wrap on another episode of the pace line. Yeah. <sighs> Great job us. Yeah. Uh, Hey, everybody, we'd love to hear your thoughts on anything we talked about today. Feel free to ask questions. Uh, also, feel free to criticize. Um, that's uh, that's certainly welcome. Um, and if you happen to drop by, hey, consider subscribing. We have $3 options, $5 options, $10 options, and then the tip jar uh, in case you just only want to go by the one time. Um, actually, you don't have to go by any more times for the others. That's true. Yes, that's true. But, uh, but, but support we, us. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, as we like to say, there's no private equity here except John's private equity and my private equity. Uh, so yeah, there aren't people with MBAs on wall street, uh, reaping profits from this. Um, uh, so yeah, we hope you like what we do. Uh, already until next week. I'm Patrick Brady with John Lewis. Thank you for listening to The Pace Line.